All right, we are doing a uh, Easter-focused message this morning. And of course, that must be all about the resurrection. But what I want to do this morning is I want to broaden out our perspective and talk about how Easter is really the story of not just one resurrection of one single man, the most important man, and of course, the most important resurrection and the most important event in all of human history, the resurrection of Jesus some 2,000 years ago. But Easter is really the story of three resurrections. And the first and most important one, of course, is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I want to start in Acts chapter 13, not a, a typical passage that we would necessarily uh, focus on for Easter, but uh, a very important passage connected to the events of the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to read from Acts 13, and this is, um, this is part of the ministry of Paul the Apostle now, and I'm going to begin to read down in a little bit deeper into the uh, into the chapter. We're going to read starting in verse 26. We're picking up right in the middle of a, of a message that Paul was proclaiming in uh, one of his missionary journeys, the very first of his missionary journeys. And he's speaking to uh, the Jewish people that were found in a, a town by the name of Antioch. And he said this, and again, this is We're picking up right in the middle of his message here. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, and of course he's speaking about the Lord Jesus and the failure of those who lived in the city of Jerusalem to recognize who Jesus actually was, the Son of God incarnated as a human being. He said, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets who had for hundreds of years, for generations before the coming of the Lord Jesus, had spoken by the Spirit of God about his coming and his arrival, so that when he did arrive, those who had eyes to recognize would be able to recognize him. They did not understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. This is one of the great ironies that's behind the story of the gospel, and that is that that you would not expect or necessarily want if you are one of the people of God to to actually stand opposed to the great plan and purpose of God in salvation. And that great plan and purpose all focused on the arrival of God's Son in human form in order to accomplish the plan of redemption. But in order to accomplish it, he had to die on a cross for our sins. And so the very people that were waiting for him and expecting his arrival ended up ironically being the instrument of his death. And it says, and verse 28, or yeah, verse 28, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, meaning all of the requirements of Bible prophecy, those things that had been proclaimed about him had to be fulfilled exactly as they had been written. They took him down from the tree, following, of course, his death on the cross and laid him in a tomb but God raised him from the dead and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses to the people those who had come up with him were of course the uh, disciples the apostles who are now his witnesses to the people and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in 
the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, and I, I like how Paul presents this. He presents the resurrection of Christ as a fact. He doesn't try to prove the factuality of the resurrection. He simply declares it as truth and as fact because there are witnesses that were on site to actually see him risen from the dead, no longer needing proof of his actual and real resurrection. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, meaning his physical body was transformed. It didn't go the way of every human being that has died in all of human history, which is when the body dies, it eventually is corrupted, whether in the grave or in the ocean or in whatever manner that death is, and in whatever location, whatever circumstance that death occurs, the body is corrupted in that process. But in his resurrection, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. This is God speaking about him. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, this is a reference, of course, back to King David in a much earlier time of history. The reason Paul even mentions King David is because God was speaking these words in the Psalms through King David, but he's alerting us as the reader to know that as David spoke these words, he wasn't speaking about himself. He was looking ahead in history by the Spirit of God prophetically and he was describing the circumstances of the resurrection, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up, Christ, of course, did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So the resurrection of Christ is a fact of history. But more than a fact of history, it is the singular most important event that has ever occurred from the beginning of history as we understand it and define it to this present moment and will be the most important event that has ever occurred until the second coming of Christ. It's the defining event of what we experience as Christianity. Had Christ not risen from the dead, you and I, could have no assurance of our salvation. We could have no confidence that we are actually in any different circumstance, spiritually speaking, or condition than the rest of the lost, fallen world that surrounds us. It is the focal point of the New Testament, New Covenant message of salvation. Now, oftentimes, and I've talked about this previously, but it's well worth rehearsing. Oftentimes, in Christian circles, almost all of our focus is on the cross and what Jesus accomplished in his sacrificial death for us. We sang several songs this morning focused on his sacrifice for us as he shed his blood to the point of death on the cross. And the cross is essential for our salvation. There is no way to be saved apart from the cross. But had Jesus died on the cross alone and never been raised from the dead, you and I might believe that his death was a saving death, but we could have no possible way of being assured that his death was a saving death. So much so that let's turn to um, the book of Romans chapter four. This is also from the teaching of the Apostle Paul. 
I'm just going to read a couple of verses here. Chapter 4, right at the end of the chapter, this is kind of the the conclusion of a a long point that Paul's making through chapters 3 and chapters 4. And I won't have time to go back and and kind of overview the, the fullness of the point. But his point essentially is this, that Christ accomplished in his death on the cross and in his resurrection from the dead what was necessary in order for us to be saved but that the resurrection of Christ has a unique relationship to our confidence and our assurance of our salvation. I'm going to read from, he's talking here at the end in verses 24 and 25 about, he's using the example of Abraham and talking about how God counted the saving faith of Abraham in the declared words of God to be righteousness for Abraham's sake, meaning Simply because Abraham believed the message that God proclaimed to him, God counted Abraham as a righteous man. And in that context, he says this in verse 24. And I'm going to pick up right in the middle of the verse. It will be counted to us, and that is saving faith. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our, trans- our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, what I want you to notice in verse 24 is that our belief is an essential element in our experience of salvation. Now, this doesn't mean that our belief causes our salvation, but our belief in the message of what Jesus did and what he accomplished on the cross is essential for our experience of salvation. But notice in verse 24 what Paul connects our belief to most immediately. He says it this way. It, that saving faith, will be counted to us, that's including you and I now, who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. In order to actually be saved, you must, yes, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. But if you only believe that Jesus died on on the cross for your sins and do not understand and do not believe that he rose again from the dead, you cannot experience the fullness of what we know to be salvation. Verse 25, he says, who was delivered up for our trespasses. His delivering up was a delivering up to the cross, to death, to a sacrificial death on the cross. But he was raised for our justification. Now, the connection here is somewhat difficult to understand and even the best commentaries on the book of Romans struggle a bit to try to communicate the concept of in what sense was he raised for our justification? Because in Christian theology, we ordinarily and normally and rightly so connect the experience of justification, which is God declaring us legally righteous before his throne on the day of judgment to the saving and sacrificial death of Christ. But here, Paul connects our experience of justification to the resurrection of Jesus. Why is that? It's because without the resurrection of Jesus, you and I could have no assurance or confidence that his death was actually a saving death. Now, this is one of the, this is one of the overlooked issues of ancient history, and I'm talking about the time that Jesus walked the earth. We all understand and know that the Roman Empire was the dominant world power at that time, and the Romans had conquered the the region of Judea in the city of Jerusalem, and they were dominating that region. And in their domination, the Romans were a very harsh and brutal government. And anyone that resisted Rome was treated in a very harsh and brutal way in order to demonstrate to the entire world it doesn't pay to resist or rebel against Rome. 
And the strongest way that Rome chose to demonstrate that, it wasn't just to the Jewish people, but certainly it was something that their domination of that region of the world uh, was a display of. And that is, they had a, a particularly horrible form of execution, which we know as crucifixion. Jesus was crucified to death on the cross. But he was not the only man crucified. Even in our, uh, our display that we had on the screen, I don't know if you noticed it this morning, but they had a new display on the screen that showed kind of a hillside and uh, kind of a silhouette of how many, did anyone notice how many crosses were on that hillside? Three crosses. And that's because, of course, at the, at the actual execution of Jesus, he was executed between two other criminals. I say other, not that Jesus was a criminal, just in the eyes of Rome, he was. But those three were not the only ones that were ever crucified by Rome. Thousands upon thousands of people were crucified by Rome in their brutal domination of the populations that they had conquered in order to send a message to those populations. And we're studying through the book of Acts. We're just beginning. We're in chapter one of our, of our study through the book of Acts We're going to focus on this as we work our way through Acts. When the apostles proclaimed the message of salvation, first to the Jewish people and later in the book of Acts, when we'll eventually get there as the gospel message went out to the Gentile nations as well, there was a focal point of their message. The cross was not the focal point of the gospel message to the lost and unsaved world around them. The cross wasn't ignored, it wasn't disregarded, it was mentioned, and it certainly had its rightful place in their proclamation. But the focal point of the saving message was the resurrection. Now the reason for that was very practical, but with, of course, spiritual content. And that is, imagine me in the ancient world going to someone living under Roman domination and saying, This man, Jesus, has just been executed on a cross. And his death was a saving death because he died for your sins. What kind of response do you think I would receive from the person that I proclaim that message to? First, they would probably say something along the lines of, yes, he died on the cross, I get that, but so have thousands of others. And you're telling me that he died for my sins, but how do I know that? How can I be confident and assured that his death was any different than the thousands of others that were executed in a similar manner as him? And so the book of Acts and the early church, the apostles focused by the spirit of God the the unsaved world's attention on the one defining event that distinguishes Jesus from all others. And that is, yes, he died on the cross. Yes, it was a saving death. But the proof that his death was a saving death was his resurrection from the dead. God, in raising Christ from the dead, was giving his own testimony that he had accepted the death of his son as a truly saving event. Now, turn, if if we could, from chapter 4, Romans, back to chapter 1. This is one of my... I, I have referenced this passage before on Easter Sundays. It's one of my favorite Easter focused passages, resurrection focused passages. We're going to read from, I'll just read from the beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 1. And I'll read through verse 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now there's a key word in verse four 
The word is declared in our ESV translation. It's not a bad translation. It just doesn't communicate the fullness of what the word that Paul originally wrote communicates. He wrote in the Greek language, of course, and the Greek word that Paul uses in this verse, verse 4, describing how the resurrection of Christ set Christ apart from every other human being who has ever lived or has since lived in all of human history. The Greek word that he uses is a word that we still use in a slightly different form in our language today. It's the Greek word horizo, and we get our English word horizon from it. Let me read it with that sense, and then I'll explain how it fits. Verse 4, speaking of Jesus, he was horizoned to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, was horizoned off from every other human being. So we have two categories of humanity that are distinguished by one event and one event only, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. And I should say this by way of explanation. You understand the Bible is a book filled with all kinds of amazing, miraculous events that God alone could accomplish. And he has accomplished many miraculous things throughout the duration of of history as we know it. One of the great miracles of God is the occasional resurrection from the dead that he accomplishes. And Jesus is not the only person that's ever been raised from the dead. But he is the only person that's ever been raised from the dead, as David emphasized in our worship time this morning, never to die again. So for instance, Lazarus in the Gospel of John was raised by Jesus from the dead. But Lazarus went on to live his natural life here in this world after his physical resurrection, and then he died a second time and has since then been waiting for a future event that's going to happen to him along with others who believe in Christ. Jesus, when he rose again from the dead, didn't continue to live a natural life in this world only to later die a second death. His death on the cross was a singular event, never to be repeated. He, he, from that point forward, has never died again. His resurrection was a special and unique resurrection that no one yet since him has ever experienced it. We'll be talking in a moment about the nature of what happened to him in his resurrection. But here Paul says that he was horizoned by the resurrection from the dead. Now you understand what a horizon is? It's simply a dividing line as we look out over the horizon. How many of you have been down to the beach to see the the sun go down? Right? So when the sun is going down, what's happening to it? It's crossing a line. The line is what you can see of the curvature of the earth. And as the sun goes from visible to down below that visible line, that line we call the horizon, it separates in terms of our perspective and our observation, it separates two categories, visible and invisible, seen and unseen. But here, the way Paul uses it is this. All of humanity is in one category, and Jesus is set apart, horizoned in a special category that later will be filled with millions of others. But at this present moment in history, he's the only one in that category because he alone has been raised from the dead, never to die again. Now, I said that the event of the resurrection of Jesus on what we call now traditionally Easter Sunday is the story of three resurrections. So the first and most important, the basis for all three is the actual real fact of history the event of the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But that resurrection provides 
an avenue to and the spiritual basis of and the power for two additional resurrections. And this is where you understand that Easter Sunday is not the story of you and I, it's the story of Christ and what God accomplished in his son. But this is the point at which we are involved in that story. And thank God we are involved in that story. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians now, chapter 2. I'm going to read a portion in Ephesians 2 that is a brief theological summary by the Apostle Paul of the entire story of the gospel from verse 1 to verse 10. I'm not going to read the entire section. I'm going to read the first half of it. But in in 10 verses, Paul summarizes the entire story of the gospel as it, of course, pertains to our need to be saved. And he starts with the bad news. We talk about the gospel being the good news because the word gospel literally translates as the good news. And it is. It's the good news, it's, it's, it's almost like too light of a way to describe the news, the kind of news that it is, the quality of news that it is. It's not just, of course, good news. It's the ultimately best news that could possibly ever be communicated. But the story of the gospel really starts not with the good news, but with the bad news. And the bad news is, apart from the saving death of Jesus on the cross, and apart from his resurrection from the dead, where would we be and what would be our standing before the throne of God? So Paul describes it this way in verse one, and this is our common testimony, our common story. And you, and he's speaking to believers here, people who have already believed this saving message of the gospel, and so he's speaking in past tense, It's a dramatic look back, spiritually speaking, at what our true spiritual condition was before the gospel impacted our soul in a saving way. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The true nature of our condition, spiritually speaking, before God was that we were all spiritually dead people. It's kind of like the best analogy I could give in using modern science fiction context to to paint the picture is we were like zombies. Every single one of us. How many, you know, some people don't really like zombie shows because they're too creepy. And I'm not recommending that you start liking zombie shows necessarily. But how many of you ever have seen either a zombie show or a zombie movie or read a zombie story at some time in your life? Most of us. What is it about zombies that's so creepy? They're alive, but they're not alive. Their physical bodies are functional, but they're really dead inside. And that is exactly what Paul is describing here. Before we were saved, we were physically functional, but spiritually like dead people inside. Dead, not so much to our own interests and desires, but dead to God, dead to a true spiritual relationship with the source of life himself. So you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which which you once walked. Following the course of this world, meaning this is common throughout the world. This wasn't just a unique story for you. This is the actual story of every human being that's born into this world. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, this is not a good spirit here, this is an evil spirit, the spirit, and, and listen, it's not a popular thing to believe anymore that there is such a thing as evil spirits, but there are such things as evil spirits. And this one is focused on the most evil of all. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
among whom we all, no exceptions, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Doesn't matter what you desired. Whatever you desired was your own desire. And it led you down various wrong pathways in life. It led you on every pathway except the one path that leads to life. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, meaning deserving only God's wrath, which is his holy response to our sin and rebellion. Like the rest of mankind. Those first three verses paint a horrific picture of what our actual circumstance, our actual spiritual condition was before God intervened. And verse 4 changes the story with a single, a single word. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now this is one of the most important statements anywhere in scripture. It captures one of the most important principles spiritually that can ever be declared or understood. And it describes the story of true salvation. Now, there are many who think they're saved but are not. And so this does not apply to them. And there are many others that could care less about the idea of being saved, and this does not apply to them as well. But it does apply to those who have come to believe and understand who Christ is and what he and he alone accomplished for us. And this has everything to do with those of us who believe that saving message. And that is, we were made alive together with Christ. Now the mystery of that is, it's describing a past event. And that past event took place before I ever drew my first breath in this world. It preceded my entry into this thing that we call life by some 2,000 years. But it says that I was experiencing something at the same time that Christ was experiencing something. And the focus here is what he experienced when he rose from the dead. And so I was spiritually counted by God as joined with him in his resurrection from the dead. Now my personal experience of that happened at a very specific moment in my life. For me, it was in February of 1979. But I was made alive together with Christ, not in February of 1979. When was I made alive together with Christ? When he rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. So the second resurrection that's in view, the second resurrection that the resurrection of Christ accomplishes is a spiritual resurrection that we know as salvation. So in February of 1979, I was 24 years old. Something amazing, something transformative, something powerful happened to me. And it changed me forever. I was brought into the fullness of the experience of what was accomplished when Jesus rose from the dead but not in a physical way. My body in February of 1979 did not change a bit from the day before to the day after I came to believe this message. But my soul was transformed. My heart was changed. 
My spirit was given new life. Externally, if you knew me in those days, you wouldn't have thought anything had happened to me because my body was identical. So that distinguishes my experience so far of the resurrection from his experience of the resurrection. Why? Because when he was raised from the dead, his resurrection was not just a spiritual resurrection, it was a physical resurrection from the dead. So we have so far two resurrections, the physical resurrection of Jesus and the spiritual shared resurrection of those who have believed the gospel of salvation. And that raises them and them only to new life so that they are now horizoned off from the rest of humanity like Jesus was. So let me say it this way. If Jesus had died on the cross for your sins, which he did die on the cross, and if you believe from your heart that he died for you, it is a saving event for you. You can be saved, truly saved, simply from believing in the death of Jesus on the cross if you never believe that Jesus is raised from the dead because his death paid the price for your sins. But you cannot experience what we call salvation without understanding and believing that he rose again from the dead. Because, again, his resurrection is the proof that his death was a saving death. Let's turn back from here once more to the book of Romans. This time, chapter 10. And this is Paul's, another of his brief summaries of the gospel. But here, he's simply summarizing the message of the gospel itself. And I'm going to read from Romans chapter 10, verse 8. He's talking here about the gospel of salvation. And he says, but what does it say? The word is near you. And we're talking here about the saving word of God, the saving message. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. What I want you to notice again, and I'm not setting the cross against the resurrection. I'm just trying to follow Paul's proclamation of the significance of the resurrection. When he says here in verse 9 that if you believe in your heart or confess with your mouth first that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that not God gave him to die on the cross for your sins, but believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Again, the significance of the resurrection rises in importance even above, in a sense, the cross itself. Because the resurrection is the ultimate testimony by God that the death of Jesus on the cross was a truly saving sacrifice. Now, one last passage on this second resurrection. 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'll read from verse 1. I'm going to read the first three verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who were elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. That, of course, is Peter's emphasis on the saving sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Um, this is, this is a, a, a super important emphasis that Peter makes about the experience that we call the new birth. Sometimes with good intentions and in Christian proclamation of the gospel and the experience of salvation as it's described to people that have not yet experienced salvation, we can uh, mistakenly, with good intentions, but mistakenly emphasize that somehow being born again is in the hands of the person receiving the message. Kind of like, I've given you the message and whatever you do with this message will determine whether or not you're going to be born again. Peter describes it in a different perspective. He describes it not so much as a work that you and I do to receive the message and to believe it and be saved because of it. And it's all true that we must believe it, we must receive it, and we are saved when we do. But his emphasis is this. He, he's speaking of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he has caused us to be born again. You can't cause yourself to be born again. The new birth is simply a spiritual experience that's compared to the natural and physical experience that all of us had when we entered into this world. How many of you here, this is an easy question to answer, how many of you here were born into this world naturally speaking? How many here were born into this world? How many of you caused your own birth into this world? How many of you? Anyone? Any of you cause your own birth in this world? Now, from a natural perspective, we know your mother and your father caused your birth into this world, naturally speaking. There's no way you were in control of that. You were just along for the ride. And what a ride it's been, right? In the same way, you cannot possibly cause yourself to be born again. And so Peter emphasizes the sovereign work of God in saving us. But then the next thing he says makes the link that I want us to not miss. The link between the resurrection of Christ and our new birth experience. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He caused us to be born again through the resurrection, not just through the saving death of Jesus on the cross. Yes, that was a necessary and essential element, but through the resurrection, he caused you to be born again. So without the resurrection, had Jesus only died on the cross for your sins, and you believed that message, but he had never risen from the dead, you could be justified before the throne of God on the final day. But you would be left essentially, spiritually unchanged. And your present experience for the rest of your life following believing that message would be one of only utter and complete and repeating failures, spiritually speaking. You would have no ability, no ability whatsoever to live any differently than you had before you were saved. Because Jesus rose again from the dead and because by believing that he has been, you are spiritually inside raised from the dead along with him. You now have the ability to live differently than you did before. You were born again through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now I mentioned there's a third resurrection that's in view that's based just like the second one upon the resurrection of Christ. So the first resurrection is the physical resurrection of Jesus. The second resurrection is the spiritual, internal resurrection of those that believe the gospel message about Jesus. The third resurrection is future. So we have these three elements of resurrection that are portrayed in the resurrection of Christ. The first is past tense. Jesus did rise again from the dead 2,000 years ago. The second is present tense. As you believe the gospel message, you are presently born again and you can now live a different life because of the power of the resurrection at work in you. 
And the third is yet future, and none of us have yet experienced this, but it's guaranteed for those of us who have been spiritually raised from the dead, and that is the future physical resurrection of all believers to share in the fullness of his own resurrection experience. Let's turn to the book of Philippians chapter 3. We're going to read just the end of this chapter. Paul writes in verse 20 of Philippians 3, that our citizenship is in heaven. This is an important declaration, especially to the Philippian church. Um, Ancient cities, just like modern cities, all had certain things that they used as bragging rights. You know, what makes this city special? And the, the city of Philippi was considered a special city in the Roman Empire because even though it was not a Roman city, it had been embraced by the Roman Empire. And those who were citizens of the city of Philippi were granted a special, a special dispensation of Roman citizenship. Roman citizenship carried with it special privileges that others who were not citizens of Rome, they may be under the heel of Rome, they may be under the domination of Rome, but if they were not citizens, they did not enjoy full citizenship rights and privileges in Rome, in the Roman Empire. But the Philippians did. But here Paul is using their own natural benefits of Roman citizenship to describe an even greater heavenly benefit and that is a citizenship in a greater kingdom a greater empire the empire of heaven itself with jesus himself as king of that empire and he says but our citizenship is in heaven meaning it comes with special rights and special privileges that all others do not enjoy and from it we wait We await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he's simply referring to, not that we're waiting from heaven, but we're waiting for something from heaven. We're living our life here in this world as true believers. I've experienced this glorious internal spiritual resurrection, but I also have an understanding that God's work is not complete until something from heaven comes. And that something from heaven is the return of his son to this world, which is proclaimed, prophesied, and promised by God. The Lord Jesus will return. And this is what's going to happen for us who have heavenly citizenship and only us who have heavenly citizenship on the day that he returns. Verse 21 who will, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Simply a declaration that Jesus, when he returned to heaven, and we've just recently studied this in great detail, in the great event known as the ascension of Christ, He was granted by God the Father authority over all spheres. Over heaven, over earth, over everyone and everything. And that same authority and power that he was granted by God the Father, he is going to demonstrate in great power on the day that he returns by taking those who belong to him and are citizens in his heavenly kingdom by faith in him now, and he is going to transform them. Not internally, because that has already taken place, but externally, we are going to be given new bodies that will be identical to his, with only one exception. The exception is his 
resurrected body by God's design and for God's great purpose because it helps us to be reminded of where our salvation started. Jesus, in his resurrection body, has flaws. What flaws does he have? The wounds that he experienced for our sake on the cross. So that when he appeared to Thomas, he told him, take your finger and put it in my, in my hand. Take your hand and place it in my side where he was pierced with the spear. This is Jesus in his resurrected, glorified body continuing to bear the evidence, not open wounds in the sense of still damaged, not open wounds in the, in the sense of still painful, but open wounds in the sense of, of continuing evidence of his saving and sacrificial death. But in every other sense other than those wounds, our bodies in the future, in the second coming event, will be transformed by the exertion of his great power to be identical to his body. Now, turn if you would from there to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and we'll end here this morning. I want to do just a brief, brief description for you of what that future physical resurrection body is going to be like. This is what his body is like right now and this is what our bodies will be like in the future. Starting in verse 35 and I don't have time to read this section but I would recommend that you do so in your own time. Starting in verse 35, you'll notice in our ESV translation, just above verse 35 in italics, you have a little headline. The headline's added by the translators, but it's a helpful addition to just let you know, you know, what is this next section all about? And the headline in the ESV is this, the resurrection body. And that section extends from 35 through to the end of the chapter, verse 58. And in that section, Paul describes using just a few key words what the nature of our resurrection body will be like and the certainty of it, the confidence we have in it is the knowledge that this is what his resurrection body is like right now and has been like for 2,000 years so far of history. But there's a, a key phrase in verse 35. So let me just read verse 35. I won't, as I said, read the whole section. But someone will ask, when Paul uses a phrase like that, what he means is, if you're paying attention to what he's been talking about throughout the chapter, he's been talking about the resurrection of Christ and how it connects to our future resurrection. He says, but if you're paying attention, you'd tend to ask this question. So you're the someone, or you should be at least the someone. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? That's an important question. The answer to that is, by the power of Christ himself when he returns. Second question, just as equally important. With what kind of body do they come? What kind of body will we be given in our future experience of the great resurrection at the end of history when the Lord Jesus returns. And so he spends from 35 through 58 describing that future body that we will all be given. Here are the key words. I'm gonna list them out and just briefly describe them for you in in turn. What kind of body will you have? And if you are of a heavenly citizenship, if you belong to him, if you have believed the saving message that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again from the dead, this will be your body forever. These key words will describe it. It's an imperishable body. It's a glorious body. It's a powerful body. It's a spiritual body. It's a heavenly body. And it is an immortal body body. Those are the key words. If you read through the section carefully, we don't have time, as I said, to go through verse by verse, but those are the key words that Paul uses. 
First, what does it mean that your body will be imperishable for all of eternity to follow the return of the Lord to this world? Imperishable means literally incorruptible. So we talked earlier about the the common experience of all of humanity is your life in this world eventually comes to an end. You will breathe your last breath your heart will beat one final time and you will die and your soul will be separated from your physical body. And then your physical body will begin at that moment to decay. Now I've got bad news that the older ones among us have already begun to understand in greater measure than the the younger ones. That is, decay doesn't start at death. My body is decaying right in front of you. Right? I mean, it's sad. You may not believe this, but once, uh, this is for Daniel's sake, once I could get this close to dunking a basketball. I could get a basketball right to the rim, but not quite a full dunk. If I were to try to dunk a ball right now, well, you could wheel in a 10-foot basketball uh, hoop and give me a basketball and give me you know, a nice running start and I could get maybe six inches off the ground. And I'm tall, but I'm not that tall. Why can't I get that high anymore? Why can't I do the things that I did when I was younger? Why, are, why is my eyesight failing? Why is, you know, my, my skin is just, it's, it's not as elastic as when I was younger. Why are my joints all creaky? <laughs> I was laying in bed last night and I had, one of my joints was just aching. And I was just like, that never happened when I was 20 years old. And I'm far from 20 now. Decay is our present experience. But when you die, your body will fully decay. But the resurrection body has no ability to decay at all. The decay principle is completely absent from that body. It is perfect and it is pristine and it will remain so for eternity with no negative change to even a single degree. No death process at work in that body. The second is it's described as a glorious body. The best way I can describe this is simply this. The scripture is very clear that the life principle of our present natural physical body is based where in your body? The life principle. What gives you life right now, physically speaking? In the blood. The word of God is very clear. The life of the flesh is in the blood. You take the blood out of your body, what is going to happen to your body? It will die. There's no way around it. There's no substitute for it. There is going to be not any, not even one drop, not even one little measure of blood in your resurrected, glorified body. So how will your body live? Instead of blood coursing through your body, what will be coursing through your body instead? The glory of God. The glory of God will be the life principle of your glorified body. You will be filled with God's glory in the same way that you're currently filled with your own blood, which is the greater life principle. Third, your body will be powerful. That means not subject to any natural weakness, impervious to viruses, as if there would be any viruses in the in the transformed new heavens and new earth in which we will be living. Not 
subject to any weakness whatsoever, fully capable of doing whatever it is that you are supposed to do in eternity to come. How powerful? Measured only by the power you see in evidence in the body of the Lord Jesus right now. Fourth, your body will be a spiritual body. Now, this is easily misunderstood because you can, you can contrast spiritual with physical, but that's not the contrast that Paul is drawing here. The resurrected body is a physical body. It has actual substance like this body does, but it's spiritual in the sense that it's not natural. So our new body is not non-physical, but it is non-natural meaning it's not limited to or governed by what we call the laws of nature in a fallen world. Fifth, our new body is going to be a heavenly body. It doesn't mean that it will be localized only in heaven and functional only in heaven. It means that the same kind of bodies that angels themselves function in, the same kind of body that Jesus himself functions in, a body that is suited for the new heavens and the new earth that are going to be transformed and and created by the Lord Jesus in his return, this body will be fit for that future and eternal circumstance. And then finally, the new body that will be given, the transformed resurrected body is described in verse 53 as an immortal body. Immortal, not subject to death at all, a body that will live forever. Now let's end by reading just the last um, few verses of this section. We're in 1 Corinthians and um, Caleb, if you'd like to come forward with the worship team and start getting ready for our final song. I'll read from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, and this is uh, Paul's way of following the, the lead and the pattern of the Lord Jesus. When Jesus would say, as we focused on many times, truly, truly, I say to you, it's, a, it's an attention-getting device to make sure you don't miss the significance of the point. And so Paul has been proclaiming these amazing principles throughout this chapter about the resurrection of Christ and our shared resurrection with him in the future. But he stops in verse 15 and he says, I tell you this, and he knew, if you haven't been paying attention to this point, stop and pay attention to this. Flesh and blood, meaning the natural physical body that we all live in right now, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, the future circumstances and conditions of the new heavens and the new earth and all all that God has planned for them for eternity to follow. This natural body won't fit there. It can't live there. It's kind of like uh, there are planets in our solar system that if you were to suddenly be transported to the planet Venus without a a space suit to protect you? How long would you live there? The answer is you couldn't live there because it's an environment that's not suited for your natural body. You would die there. This natural body is not suited for the future circumstance that God has planned. So I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable? Behold, I tell you a mystery. Mystery here does not mean biblically something that we can't understand. It means something that's hidden to the eyes of a lost, fallen, unbelieving, rebellious population, but should not be hidden to our eyes now that our eyes by the grace of God have been opened to understand these things. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep That's the sleep of death, meaning some of us are going to be alive at the great event that we call the second coming of Christ. And when that happens, we shall all be changed. In a moment, 
in the twinkling of an eye, and this is just a, it's a literary way of describing a literal nanosecond. It's going to happen instantaneously by the full display of God's resurrection power. In a moment, in the twinkling of the eye, at the last trumpet, that last trumpet will sound as the announcement of the return of the Lord Jesus to this world. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Let's sing.